0: Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones, coming to you from Washington, host of the podcast, Transformative Principal, and author of the book, School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I'm a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings,
1: everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and cyber traps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital
0: devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. Buoyancy Digital is proud to be the inaugural mission partner for the Cybertraps podcast series, a digital advertising consultancy with an ethos. Buoyancy was founded by Scott Rabinowitz, who has been in digital media since 1997 and has overseen $300 million in youth safety compliant advice across all digital platforms. For IAB, Google, and Bing accredited brand and audience safe advertising sales solutions, media buying, and organizational training for media publishers, Please reach out to Scott at buoyancy digital at buoyancydigital.com or at Scott R. Media on LinkedIn. Greetings there, Jethro. Hello, Fred. Good to see you. Good
1: to see you. Glad you made it back safely from the wilds of Texas. That's not always an easy thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> I am very pleased to have the opportunity to introduce our next guest. A friend of mine that I've met through NASDAQ, we've talked a fair amount about the National Association of State Directors of Teacher Education and Certification, and a significant piece of that are the folks who investigate uh, potential wrongdoing by educators, and our guest today is Quinton B. Dale, who is currently the Chief of Investigations for the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education Office of Professional Practices Investigations. There's a mouthful. He previously served as Director of Investigative Division, Deputy Director of the Investigation Division, and as an investigator for the Massachusetts Attorney General's Office. In addition, Mr. Dale previously served as a corrections counselor for the Massachusetts Department of Corrections. He also served as commissioner for the Massachusetts Commission on Judicial Conduct and on the Board of Directors for St. Francis House. He's a graduate of Northeastern University, where he received a Bachelor of Science degree in criminal justice. Welcome, Q, to the
2: show. Thank you, Fred and Jeff, for having me. Happy to be here.
1: Well, it's a real pleasure. Quite a career in criminal justice work, Q. Actually, it's fun to read your bio. I don't think I knew half of that.
2: <laughs> yes, yeah, that's a, a life spent. <laughs> it's been my whole my whole <laughs> life spent adult life spent um, in the, in this field,
1: and so now you're working with the folks in the licensing division for the state of Massachusetts. So, given the fact that a lot of our listeners are educators, can you tell us a little bit about the structure of that and how it all works?
2: Sure, certainly. You know the the department is responsible for issuing the issuance of educator certifications in the state of Massachusetts. At the application process, there are a there's an affidavit that the uh, applicants fill out and disclose certain information on those affidavits. If there's some negative information disclosed on the uh, affidavit, that is referred to my office, which is the Office of Professional Practice, we'll refer it to as OPPI going forward. From there, we will initiate a review of the disclosure and make an assessment of individual candidates applica- fitness for licensure this once a license is issued and the uh, licensees go off to become teachers in the various districts around the Commonwealth or across the country and they uh, refer engage in some kind of misconduct, lose employment that is uh, reported to the department, my office again OPPI by regulation and we will initiate initiate an investigation. Into those allegations uh, based on the report from the districts.
1: Interesting stuff. Now, how long have you been there?
2: I joined the department in 2012. So I just had my ninth year anniversary.
1: Wow. <laughs> so you've sort of been there and seen that then as far as the uh, issues
2: of teacher misconduct go. Yeah, well, I thought I'd seen that, but <laughs> I'm, I'm constantly surprised that, that <laughs> things continue to evolve. Uh, and I'm, I'm always amazed by some of the conduct that people would engage in.
0: Yeah. Um, I, as, as a foreign principal myself, I've been very surprised numerous times that I would have thought if you're a teacher, this kind of behavior should just be a given that you wouldn't do it, but that is certainly not the case. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got into the education side of things after working in the department of corrections and getting a criminal justice degree? How did that transition take place?
2: The one thing Fred didn't mention about my background is that I've been a high school basketball coach. I was a head basketball coach at a local high school for 20 years. So I've always had an eye on kids and, and the care of kids, uh, the conditions that they you know, allow to grow and function and serving as a bit of a role model. When I saw the opportunity at Desi, the Department of Education, second elementary and secondary education to become an investigator, the leader, uh, the chief of investigations of that unit, uh, it had a lot of appeal to me uh, for the work it was doing and for the reasons it was being done.
0: So if you could talk a little bit about some of the things that you have seen, we certainly don't want you to divulge any personal information or anything like that, of course, but what are some of the traps that you've seen um, educators get into and how kind of some things that have led to that, that, uh, you know, maybe talk about a slippery slope or something where once you start going down a path, it's hard to not get in trouble once you start doing that. Any of those kind of insights you've found?
2: I think the slippery slopes would be for new educators coming into the schools, uh, fresh out of college and trying to establish relationships, make them the cool teacher, make them the fun teacher, the teacher that want to be around that's a, that's a very dangerous slope that invites, uh, a slippery slope that invites uh, all kinds of problems uh, of, in terms of communications familiarity, familiarity, losing the hierarchy of student-teacher uh, relationship. It, it blends that line. And next thing you know, there are inappropriate communications that are happening outside of the school or visits to a classroom repeatedly when the student's not supposed to be in that classroom that raises the uh, awareness levels of the administrators and the schools to start watching, uh, paying closer attention. It's just, it's not a good idea. Blur that line of (laughs) teacher-student. You know, you want to be the authority figure and and, and have the students respect you for the position that you're in and not try to be their peer or their friend.
1: Yeah, actually, Q, it's interesting because I remember my parents saying when I was a kid that, we're not here to be your friend. We're here to be your parent. And that's really the first and primary role that we have. And I think that that's important for educators to remember as well, that they do have a job-related, societally expected role to play with the kids.
2: Absolutely. And and that's what the kids are there for. And that's what their parents expect from you. And the moment that you are impacting the child's future, that's not going to go well for you if if it's if they learn some negative information, they're going to raise that to the administrator's attention. And ultimately that's gonna to lead to a consequence that has you appear before me and my colleagues.
0: Yeah, one of the things that I've seen a lot of is that teachers develop really strong, powerful relationships with kids, which is what we want, but they also need to be appropriate and within the proper bounds of a teacher-student relationship. And there there is a line there And when that line gets blurred or crossed, then then it can be very damaging. One of the things that I talked with my teachers about a lot was if your kids are calling you mom or dad, then you're starting to cross that line. But that was a much better place to be than your teachers call or your students calling you the cool teacher or the fun teacher, because then you were introducing something different into that relationship that was not always negative, but almost every teacher that had that was considered the fun teacher or the cool teacher was the teacher who was flirting quite closely with that line.
2: Yeah, I would think that's a that's a very accurate assessment. Uh, I, I haven't heard the mom and dad comment before, but I would agree with that completely. It, it's um, you know the reputations of teachers are passed down um, from sibling to sibling, class to class. So if you develop that reputation early on in your career, everyone's going to expect that kind of openness and closeness and friendliness from you as you go through your career. And in the moment you change, that's going to uh, rub somebody the wrong way. And then they're going to find some reason to expose you for something that you may or may not have engaged in.
1: Let me ask you this. Um, You've been now with OPPI now for what about 9 years you said right so yes. that that takes you back to roughly 2012 and social media had been around for a little bit but then you know when you started your investigative work with the attorney general presumably things were just getting up to speed this is a great opportunity to kind of reflect on the changes that you've seen in terms of technology hmm. and i think specifically with educators what are the things that have caused the most problems in your experience?
2: It's twofold. I mean, you know, with the explosion of uh, social media certainly has made more opportunities available for uh, students and educators to engage in uh, inappropriate behavior, conduct. Um, But, you know, the, the explosion of, of the social media, what I'm seeing is what we see is more brazen conduct more brazen activities the boldness of what you ask for how you approach it how you you, there's no finesse to it It, it's just like right there in your face now send me uh, some some nudes i'll share i'll send you some nudes of myself uh you know sharing of that type of information arranging for meetings outside of the school Uh, you know, in these off-peak hours, after hours. Uh, We're seeing a lot more of these inappropriate communications during this pandemic because what used to be taboo is having open communications with a a school teacher or administrator in your bedroom at night was completely uh, automatically a red flag, right? Text messages or Snapchatting, TikTok, all of those things that used to be automatic red flags are no longer automatic red flags because the lines of communication have moved to the digital platforms, right? So these conversations are happening in the bedrooms, they're happening in the cars, they're happening wherever and it's allowed more opportunity for uh, misconduct. So we're seeing what starts, starts out as normal relationships about homework, about school assignments and things like that quickly get switched over into a private server uh, and go in a different direction. Someone's consuming a substance, whether it be alcohol or some controlled substance that gives them the more courage to come forward and be aggressive in their uh, desires for the the relationship that they're, they're cultivating. There's a lot of we're seeing a lot more grooming behavior, even though that's difficult to define. We're seeing a lot more grooming behavior that if you follow the thread, it leads up to the actual uh, act, the misconduct Mm -hmm. that, that occurs.
0: So this is an area where I feel the pandemic has really put us in a difficult spot that, like you mentioned, having these meetings with teachers and students happening in the students' bedroom virtually has made it easier for that kind of that kind of thing to continue someplace else getting everybody used to uh, meeting online and doing video calls has made it more comfortable for people to continue communicating in that way you know having a a one-to-one video call with your teacher was completely unheard of if you need to talk to your teacher you'd go into their classroom and talk with them and now you're logging on to their office hours uh, where it could be just you and them, but you're in your bedroom as a student and they could be in their bedroom too. And so there's, there's all kinds of opportunities for things to go awry in that situation. Before we move on to how social media has helped us uh, find that people have done these things, what are some suggestions that you have for keeping those newer ways of communicating safe and maintaining those boundaries when it seems harder than ever to do that?
2: I would think that and recommend that, you know, I I, I know it's challenging because of the volume of students to put it within the same, conduct your business in the same hours that you would if you were doing it in school, uh, because there's, there's more, you have to meet with each individual student, but to try to limit and set some boundaries on, you know, when you're available for communication. Uh, Stay away from roles that you're not licensed to to be in. Uh, Offering advice, guidance. Uh, If you're a classroom teacher, offering uh, advice on colleges and and social stuff, you know, uh, that's the role of a guidance counselor. Using your school server to conduct your business is really important. Stay away from, you know, your private platforms that you that you feel more comfortable on. If it's transparent, if it's done on the school network, that is there to protect you, not just to catch you, you know. So if, if you're doing it and it's open and it's transparent, then, you know, you find yourself walking a bit of a straighter line. So I, w- I would say try to operate in the virtual world as you would in the physical world. Uh, set your boundaries, manage the expectations of the students that we're not going to go into these gray areas and make the proper referrals. To use a simple term, stay in your lane. To, to don't, don't, don't expand just because you're uh, more comfortable at home and you feel like it's an open, open forum.
1: See, that's great coaching advice, too. Stay in your lane when you're <laughs> playing defense or you're trying to score. You know, I, I, I appreciate you saying that, Q, because if there's two words we use more than any others on this podcast, it's transparency and accountability in terms of a teacher's interactions with their students. And, you know, before we move on to the digital investigation piece, I think it's a good opportunity to talk about these new forms of communication, like the private messaging apps, uh, the apps that purport to disappear messages, you know, like Snapchat or Telegram or things like that. Are these things that are popping up in your cases and are there any particular apps that people should be aware of?
2: A lot of stuff that are, uh, that's happening on Instagram and Snapchat. I think Discord's another one that's becoming popular. I think it's a server that's controlled by the individual and they could have the ability to delete all of the communications on it to shield not just one end of it, all of it, both ends of it, you know, re- uh, sending and receiving. But, you know, the thing about it is, Students. Uh, there are also recording apps that you don't know are running. There's screenshots that are being captured that we're able to make the cases from after the digital footprint, quote unquote, has been deleted and removed. But mainly uh, Instagram and and Snapchat. I, I don't know all of the names of the various ones that my my t- team of investigators are dealing with, but I I hear Instagram quite a bit.
1: Well, I think that's actually more than sufficient, really, though, to remind educators, you're talking about these red flags that they should be thinking about, you know, in terms of their interactions with students. And one of the most obvious would be, of course, that you're using some non-approved method of communication to interact Mm -hmm. with a student. Mm -hmm. And that should let you know that maybe this is a line or a lane you don't want to go down.
2: Well, you know, just going back to the cautionary tale, as long as it's uh, just backing up a little bit, as long as it's good for the student, it's in their mind, you don't have anything to worry about. But as soon as something goes awry, they're going to expose you. The girlfriend or the boyfriend of the student you're engaged with is going to be upset and come forward. And these Screenshots and video recordings that they'll use them against you as as soon as they have an opportunity or want to. It's along the lines of uh, revenge, like when they don't get what they want from you, or uh, when you have to come down hard on them. They turn, and that's something encourage educators to be aware of. That at some point, that person, even if they, if later years later when they mature and become of sound of mind. Uh, In decision making, we'll look back at what happened to them, pull up those communications and see that there was some manipulation or exploitation that was occurring to them that they didn't quite understand at the time. And we'll bring that up and we will still uh, go back and investigate that. So it still exists. It doesn't go away and it can come back to haunt you uh, at any time.
0: I appreciate you saying that, Q, because it. It seems like in the moment everything is fine and there's nothing wrong with what you're doing because you're just building a relationship with the student and then things happen and it goes too far and then you as a teacher may not know how to get back out like out of that situation and you may hope that it just quietly goes away but I mentioned the cool teacher being an issue before and that's an area where I've definitely seen that time and again where a, a quote unquote, cool teacher, everything's fine. And then they aren't even doing anything wrong, to be honest. And then the students, the teacher needs to like hold students accountable in a way that they haven't before. And the students, I don't think that they are bad, but they feel hurt and they feel offended and they feel um, taken advantage of or something like that, because that relationship was not appropriate in the first place And so then they feel the need to lash out after that and to make sure that the other person feels as hurt as they do. And this is a very complex and challenging topic to be sure, but it's definitely something where if you're not paying attention and making the right choices in the moment, then those things are going to come back and get you later. And I, I hate that we have to say it, but really you have to be on your guard all the time as a teacher to, to be thinking about your behavior all the time and as a principal too. So it's not just teachers, educators in general, you've got to be there.
2: Educators in general, coaches as well. I I would just use myself as an example, you know, uh, as a coach, you know, you have 15 kids on the team, you got 32 minute game, (laughs) you're trying to win, you can't play all of the kids, Uh, but you're pushing them, Daily in practice to get better, you're coming out on them, you're yelling at them, you're motivating them in different ways. So, we would come back from games, and there'll be no ride to offer the kid, no one there to pick the kid up. But, me recognizing, hey, if I get put this kid in my car, that could be a problem for me because it's gonna they could say that I did something that didn't happen. So, I refuse to be alone with a kid, I would never give a kid a ride in my car. If the kid didn't have a ride and we couldn't reach the family member, I would call a police station and say, now's the time. I need some help. Can you take this kid home? Because I can't. And that's to protect myself, to protect the kid. So I would ask, encourage people to apply that same kind of strategy to their interactions with students. Keep it strictly professional. Don't put yourself in a vulnerable position because those things, kids aren't predictable. Uh, they, they will say things that May not be may or may not be true, but even if they say something that is untrue and the light is shown on you, it's going to be uncomfortable for your career so you know just uh, walk a very fine line um,
1: <laughs> well, you know, and i I think that that that's such a great example, obviously, our friend Troy Hutchings has used that quite a bit in terms of his trainings and his discussions of the model code of ethics for educators one of the things that he likes to talk about which i think is important is the need to have these conversations among faculty among educators before the situation arises so for you as a coach you know it's good to have a sense of how your administrators expect you to handle that situation and what you will do if it arises you know in terms of not being able to reach the family do you call a friend do you call the police do you call Whomever, but knowing ahead of time makes a big difference.
2: It sure does, and, and that was stressed upon me. Don't when I took the job, they would say, "Be careful as a coach, as a teacher." Because I, I started out as a substitute teacher, and they're like, "These kids are going to gravitate to you; they're going to like you." But be careful, and and I heeded that advice, and, and I encourage other people. You know, I think the districts' uh, administrative leaders do a good job of providing the tools and the resources uh, to guide you. It's up to you to to review and adhere to those policies because they're there for a reason to protect you and protect the district and to protect the students. And if you throw caution to the wind, it could have some severe consequences for you.
1: Last week, Q, actually, I did a panel discussion. I moderated a panel discussion for Paul Shaw and Anne-Marie Fenton down in Georgia. Mm -hmm. And one of the members of the panel discussion was himself a middle school coach. And he had some really interesting things to say about how he handled the social media interactions and behaviors of his players, you know, in terms of being able to see what they were posting and having ongoing conversations with them about what was and was not appropriate. Is that something that you've had a chance to do yourself as a coach? When did social media really come in to your oh, coaching yeah. career?
2: <laughs> it was uh, It was there. Available, But just like uh, the same policies that they have in school, you don't become friends, which you don't request or accept friend requests from your players or your students while they're students, certainly. And that's the way I we make sure that, you know, we tell the educators in Massachusetts that's just taboo. You do not uh, need to do that. If they need the community, use your school. You have a edu account you know, you have office hours at the school that you can uh, arrange or you can arrange a video chat over the school network. Getting down into the weeds of monitoring their uh, social media comments and and posts, it's a slippery slope as well because that will cause you to feel a certain way about a kid and project itself from you in your relationship with how you relate to that student. So I kind of Stay away from that, stay completely away from it. I know they're gonna be reactions to the way the contest went, plan times, and things like that. And you see the same things for when a teacher gives a test and the, the grades come out and the fairness of it and not happy. So there's some, you know, we've seen that as well. It started out and a, with a teacher not liking what someone wrote about them and a social media post and responding to it, which got the ball rolling. Next thing you know, well, their teacher was exposed for something they had done previously that was unknown Mm. because somebody uh, came to the defense of the student.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting that we're covering this because one of the things we'll be talking about later in the spring is a case that's before the United States Supreme court involving a cheerleader who was upset with her cheering time or her place in the cheerleading squad And she went on to Snapchat and posted a multiple expletive deleted comment about the school, her cheerleading coach, all the rest of it. And she was disciplined by the school for her post. And the question before the Supreme Court is whether that was a violation of her First Amendment rights. And so that may change the playing field, if you will, for how educators and administrators respond to social media comments by kids.
2: Yes, it will. And we're actually monitoring some cases like that now where teachers have been terminated, uh, lost their positions as as, as educators due to their profiles and comments on social media. And is that an infringement on their right to free speech? It hasn't been decided yet. Uh, We're holding those cases (laughs) on the back burner for a while till we get some kind of a ruling from the court system. So to, we, to help us inform our position, we see it as, uh, you know, we have this standard, it's decide on, it. it's a more character, sound more character, which is a very vague term and loosely defined and gives us an opportunity to take a good hard look because of these type of uh, social media posts. We haven't ruled on any of the cases yet, but we're certainly seeing a rise, we're seeing arise. A couple of our teachers uh, went down to the uh, insurrection on January 6th, and we're trying to decide on how to pursue those cases. Uh, from a licensure standpoint it, was standpoint, it was easy for the districts because they use a sick day to be down in, in D.C., so that was an easy employment uh, situation. But just backing up, i like to back up a little bit. You asked me what would I... Um, encourage, uh, say, to young and newer uh, educators to be careful of. One of the things that we've learned and have received back from several educators who were young that were very early in their careers and uh, just straddling the lines, just hadn't gotten into real trouble uh, where we could offer some remediation to for them to be able to continue their careers was sending them out to uh, boundaries course. And they come... We've heard repeatedly after the course that it was the best course they've ever taken. They wish they had had it before as a part of uh, their introduction into the teaching profession when they first started because they would have been able to recognize the lines a lot clearer. They wouldn't have been so blurry. And they've encouraged the districts to offer or reimburse for the course because uh, they felt it was so beneficial. We've gone around the state to meet with the different associations, principals, and superintendents, and teachers associations to encourage them to try to adopt uh, something in their employee handbook that requires the completion of a boundaries course that highlights for educators where the problem areas are, things they should really watch out for, and, and how to, like you said earlier, Jeff wrote, back out of a situation before it becomes too much to handle and it's just encouraging to us because people think that our job is to discipline and to end the careers of people but no we actually try to to enhance their careers and 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 strengthen their ability to be effective teachers uh, so if we can find a way to offer some training some form of remediation to strengthen their position as teachers that's the course of a line of action we'll try to pursue Obviously, some cases uh, require more uh, stringent sanctions, revocations, suspensions, and and things like that. But if we can catch them early enough before uh, they get into, they're in a gray area, they get into that real red area, we found that to be an effective tool for helping uh, teachers. And we would love it when they come back and say, thank you, thank you, thank you, and go on. When I'm talking, I'm talking about a teacher who has a habit of touching. Just patting people, getting too close to them, just making them generally uncomfortable and not recognizing that they're invading someone's personal space. And or the collateral impact that their behavior is having on students. You know, uh, oftentimes they're engaged in the behavior with one student, but the student that's feeling it is across the room and doesn't, it's not noticed. So it's the collateral impact of the conduct that they don't recognize Uh, And an example, and stop me if I'm getting on a roll example, it would be a coach who likes to be physical, uh, play around with the kids, tussle with them when they walk into the classroom, bump into them and things like that. Or if they get an answer wrong, make them do push-ups. That's going to discourage other students from answering questions because they don't want to be made to get up and do a push-up. So that's a collateral consequence to that. Or I don't want this teacher to elbow me or put me in a bear hug. So I'm going to come into the class early or whatever it is. So these type, the it's the conse- uh, the collateral behavior that we try to get them to recognize that the impact is having on not just the student before that they're dealing with, but the other students as well. Uh, and sometimes we often hear that's an aha moment. It's like, wow, I had no idea that absolutely like, good student, but never raised to ask you a question in class because they were intimidated by your conduct with certain students.
0: Yeah, I think that collateral damage idea is really powerful because you may be focused on that one student, but everybody else is also focused on the interplay between you two. And um, that's actually how I learned about most situations in as a principal was because other students would say, this teacher is Talking only answering this kid's questions or only paying attention to this kid, and there the other kids are starting to see that there's something weird going on that's not right. So, I appreciate you bringing those points up
2: as well. Yep, and and, and they call as I said, when pointed out to them, it's an aha kind of a oh my god, I had no idea, I thought I was just bonding. So, sending them out for classroom management courses and time management courses and things like that. It helps to redirect teachers, young professionals without professional status to become, to obtain that professional status. And And when they write us back to say, thank you, that really made a difference in my career.
1: <laughs> it's like teachers getting the comments from students that they really had an impact on their lives. Mm-hmm. That's the, same concept. Well, look, you know, I think that this is something that uh, we've been advocating for as part of teacher prep programs, and I know a lot of other. That's people, the word
2: I was looking for. Teacher right?
1: <laughs> a lot of other people are doing the same thing. So hopefully, the work that we're all doing will help to strengthen those programs and and help educators clarify their roles and responsibilities a bit more. You know, and I think social media—the real challenge we face is that social media blurs all of our roles, right? The whole concept of friend is a much fuzzier concept than it used to be. There's no way I have 900 friends or whatever Facebook tells me I have.
2: <laughs> I agree. But
1: be that as it may, I think, you actually, one of the real advantages of having a chance to talk to you is that, you know, for hopefully really good reason, Most educators don't necessarily know how your office works in terms of initiating an investigation and in particular, the kinds of evidence that you go out and look for. And I don't know if we've chatted about this at the various NASDAQ conferences, but a thread of the work I do is is computer forensics. So actually digging around in hard drives and so forth, mostly on the criminal defense side. I'd love to have you walk us through the basic bones of an investigation and what are some of the challenges you face?
2: Sure, Uh, absolutely. So in most cases, I need to make it clear that we are not the first people to know about the misconduct. It's always on the district level, whether that be at the school, Department of Children and Families for us here in Massachusetts, Massachusetts, or the, the DA's office, local police department, uh, they they have the first fight at the apple. If it's at the school level and it's involving technology, they will do the initial forensics. If through the course of the investigation that we uncovered through interviews that there was more communication than the district has been able to uh, uncover during their look at the school network, we will request the physical machine whether it be a laptop a desktop the hard drive from it and we will turn that over to the attorney general's office who has the real uh, expertise in the area to be able to extract deleted files and everything else they'll do they do a really fine job of conducting the forensics for us Um, they'll provide us the report for the forensics and they will also come in uh, and be witnesses to testify to what they were able to extract to uh verify the evidence right so what it, for us we're going to interview a lot of people we're going to interview the school personnel we're going to interview the uh, victims uh we're going to interview witnesses which are oftentimes your peers uh we're going to interview former students uh we're, we're going to dig and and ask a lot of questions we request a lot of documentation and uh, give you an opportunity to be heard. And that's the bare bones. If you want to go to a hearing, then we'll prepare for a hearing, which is sort of like, you know, preparing for a trial. We will get all of our exhibits together, witnesses prepped, and and we'll go to that hearing.
0: So you mentioned a a similarity to a to a legal trial, is your authority on par with a law enforcement agency, or is it strictly related to endorsing or not endorsing a, a, a person to be an educator? And how compelled are people to cooperate in the investigation?
2: Well, okay, so it's on par. Uh, we are the lic- licensing authority. The commissioner is the licensee, uh, licensing authority. The commission Only the commissioner can Uh, make the decision. Uh, We make recommendations to the commissioner how he should proceed with that uh, license. Uh, It's different. As an applicant for licensure, you do not have any rights. The commissioner's decision is final. He does not have to issue you a license or grant you a license. Uh, We can deny that and he can adopt that recommendation. As a licensed educator, you have a right to a hearing. So you, you can request that. You can exercise that right, and we will have that hearing. But prior to that hearing, uh, the, we will issue notice of probable cause with the commissioner supporting the recommendation for revocation or whatever the sanction level is that we're, you're taking us to hearing for. You've requested a hearing. So w- if the commissioner is recommending revocation, that's where we're going for the hearing for the hearing officer. Cannot reverse changes the commissioner's decision. He can only recommend that the commit he or she can only recommend that the commissioner take a look at and consider other factors um, if necessary, uh, based on uh, the evidence that was presented during the hearing. Sorry. The decision is final. If you want to be reinstated, you would have to appear before the board of education, and it takes two thirds the board voting in your favor. and you know, the standards for the board of education are pretty high.
1: <laughs> to get back in, right? to get
2: back in yes, sir.
1: <laughs> the um the the chief distinction, maybe picking up a little bit on what jethro was was asking about, is that the process that you're talking about and the hearing that is conducted is limited solely to the educator's license. So Correct. there's no criminal implication. That's all handled uh, by the criminal courts. and of course, a, an educator could also wind up in civil court if there's a lawsuit by a victim or something like that.
2: Yes. And and I guess the only dis- uh, thing I'd add is during the course of our investigation, we discover some elements of a crime. We are going to make that referral to the DA's office and work well, and, in partnership with them.
1: Right. And in terms of discovering potential aspects of a crime, the one thing I wanted to really pick back up on that you had mentioned was the digital footprint that educators are leaving out in the world. And in particular, I guess you'd you'd concentrate on like text messaging and social media posts and, and so forth. What has been your experience in terms of the cooperation of digital media companies or app companies to provide you information? I assume, given the fact that you're the state, you have subpoena power that is observed.
2: Yes. When we go, we have subpoena power only when we are at hearing. We don't have it in the day-to-day operation of uh, our job functions. We so talk- just a
1: routine do- investigation, you're not getting that information?
2: No. Nope. We are not receiving that uh, from, the, from the, the host companies. We will try. We will send out and requests, but they're often rejected. <laughs> uh that you know, a quote unquote a fishing expedition. Um once we uh have a hearing date, then we have subpoena power and and then they comply. But again, the Attorney General's office aids us in that way. If they're suspecting that there was uh, a crime committed, if this goes back to it, say, let's just say we, we're talking about an inappropriate sexual relationship and the person is 16, 16, 17. Well, they want to look back to see if there was something going on when the person was 15, be below the age of consent. Uh, So the subpoena will issue for that reason, to be able to find out what, what kind of communications they were engaged in. If the Attorney General Office doesn't find anything that leads to a crime, they won't share that information with us. So in because in that, it was gained, it was gained under the subpoena for that purpose.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So so in the situation where somebody has done something and it's not illegal, you do the best investigation you can with the information that you have. And you mentioned before that you can find some evidence on social media, so then that makes your job a bit easier. But um, but really, when it when it comes down to it, if it's a criminal matter then you're going to refer it to the DA so that they can handle it in a criminal setting rather than you handle it in a licensure setting. Did I understand that process correctly?
2: You did, sir. Absolutely.
0: So, so if that's the case, then there are many things that somebody could lose their license for that aren't necessarily worthy of, a uh, that aren't breaking the law. For example, but are breaking the code of conduct for their profession, and so in those situations, a a hearing determines that. How often do people say I'm not interested, and they like give up their licensure? Does that kind of stuff ever happen, where somebody says I don't want to go through the through the process of an investigation and hearing, or would you conduct it anyway?
2: No, absolutely. <laughs> I don't mean to chuckle, but yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, that, that is our best tool available. Uh, for ending the careers, those engaging in the misconduct, they're affording an opportunity to surrender to or three different times throughout the process. And oftentimes the case against them is so overwhelming, that's the option they choose. They know that they're not going to prevail at a hearing. But I think the biggest thing that determining factor there is public records, right? So in our initial phase of the investigation, there's very limited information that's available we haven't created generated a lot of public documents and if they elect to surrender at that time those documents are never created but if we move say we move from show cause to probable cause that is outlaying the facts of the case that is blow by blow what has happened and why we're bringing these charges against you people fear that being exposed to the media through a public records request so they know that they've been exposed and uh, terminated from their jobs because of the misconduct or resigned from their jobs because of the, the misconduct. And they want to just keep it limited to that because the district cannot talk about the reason for separation of employment in specific detail. And if our records don't reference the specific conduct, then it's very limited what people can know about what actually happened. That you engage in some inappropriate behavior. It's something, some language like that. So a lot of educators elect to surrender at that stage before we get to the probable cause stage, which, which the media is daily. We're getting uh, requests for public records in that area. So they will give it up then. If we issue probable cause and go to a hearing, we can't issue any public records until the case is fully adjudicated. Uh, but then, once it's done, that story follows after the case is over. So people try to avoid a high, uh, a decent percentage surrender, and that comes about from the course of the investigation. They catch when, who we're talking to, and how, you know all of the various people that we're we're interviewing. They know that we're getting closer. We're, they know that we're understanding the truth. So uh, that helps tip the scales in our favor as well.
1: Q, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. I really appreciate you taking the time. I, I know from our other chats, that things are a little busy for you right now. So <laughs> it's very kind of you to come join us for the podcast. Uh,
2: my pleasure to be here. Uh, I hope that I share some information that will be uh, useful to not only uh, you guys, but to the listeners out there. We'll help them go forward in their careers without incident. Talk to their administrators about some air prep stuff that we discussed here today and you know, have a successful career.
1: Excellent. Alrighty, that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, professional responsibility, and the challenges of high tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of international experts. We're helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology.
0: You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast players. Please reach out to us if you have questions or suggestions for show topics. We'd love to hear from you. And we, want, if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, please follow me at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have enjoyed this interview. If so, please leave us a five-star rating interview in your podcast service. Thank you so much for listening to Cybertraps. And we look forward to seeing you in our live episode on Monday.